So it's good to be back with all of you again. And like I said, we're going to continue to work through the Heidelberg Catechism. And as we just read it, it's Lord's Day 15. And so if you've been a part of this series, or part of, if you know the Catechism in general, you know that this section of the Catechism works through the phrases in the Apostles' Creed. And that brings us tonight to a strange addition, at least in my opinion, to the Apostles' Creed. Uh, one of the things uh, that Tony does often is that he interviews denominational candidates. So people who are working towards getting ordained, uh, they have to go through a denominational exam period. And Tony is, a, is an examiner quite often, and one of his favorite questions to ask, something that him and I have talked about on a number of occasions, is, around, is about Pontius Pilate. Because in the Apostles' Creed, there are only two people named, and he might have mentioned this a few weeks ago. First, Mary. Well, she makes sense, of course. She's the mother of Jesus. It makes sense for her to be named. But out of all the other people that the writers of the Apostles' Creed could have chosen, I could have chosen Paul, we could have chosen Peter, but they chose Pontius Pilate. And he, the question is, why? Why would they put him in there? Why does he matter? Why, does he, why is he even a part of this, such, such, this important creed that we all attest to? And so that's the goal for tonight. Tonight we're going to take a look at a couple of things. First, we're going to look at Pilate himself. We're going to try our best to understand him within the general history of the world. And then we're going to try to understand how he fits into the story of Jesus, into the crucifixion story. And so we're going to actually spend quite a bit of time walking through history. I'm a history nerd, and if you don't like history, I'm sorry, wait till the end, and then maybe it'll be something you like a little more. But if you do like history, if you do like understanding how this all fits, that's where we're going to start. But whenever we do that, we, we still have to bring it back to the so what. Why does all of this even matter? Why does Pilate matter? Why does he matter in this story and how does he fit? And so our scripture passage tonight will actually be from John 19. But we're going to get to that a little bit later. We're going to start by just setting the stage, but then we'll read John 19. So the question that we start with then is, who is Pilate? And that was a good question, and I actually was really excited to explore this. I actually thought it would be pretty easy, right? He's a Roman governor, so we probably have a lot of history written about him, and it's probably pretty straightforward. But once I started digging, I realized that's not the case. There is a ton of discrepancy when it comes to who Pilate was. If you were, the Jewish historians write about him quite a bit, Philo, Josephus. They paint him as a cruel, harsh, and violent person. The Jewish people hated Pilate, but now, hold on, before we all throw in on Pilate, the Jewish people really hated anyone who wasn't Jewish and ruling them. So we have that. So we have to keep that in context, that, that the Jewish historians are going to write through that lens, and they did. They don't have a lot of nice things to say about Pilate. But if you were to read Greek and Roman histories, they don't paint him as cruel and harsh, but they do paint him as, as kind of impotent or, or, or ineffective. They, they kind of paint him as someone who got the job because of family and political connections and was constantly falling just a little short of what was expected of him. And so we'll keep both of those things in mind as we explore Pilate. My guess is it's neither of the extremes. There was probably something in between. So in order for us to fully understand Pilate, the first thing that we need to understand is that we have to, we have to understand Israel. Uh, we have to realize that the, the, to be a Roman governor of Israel was not a good thing. It, Israel was one of the worst places to be a Roman governor. You, it was kind of the lowest, one of the lowest spots on the totem pole. There probably were worse places you could be sent, like outposts in the middle of the desert or something. But Israel was towards 
the bottom. And that was for a number of reasons. First, it's a long ways away from Rome. It's not an easy trip from Rome to, to Israel without cars or airplanes or things like that. It was a hike. And, and it's not that, of, not, not that exciting of a place. The economy is mediocre. The, the landscape is mediocre. There's not a, there's, it, it has military significance. It's the land route from Europe and Asia to Egypt and Africa. But it doesn't really offer much and cool factor beyond that, uh, if you're, especially if you don't have faith. Faith, of course, you go there to see all these wonderful things. Without that, it's just there. But Israel's location is not really the main reason for it to be a difficult place to be governor. The main reason was the religious and political structure of Israel. If you want to flip to the first slide. In order for us to really understand that, we've got to back up a little bit further. Actually, back to the time of Alexander the Great. And I promise this is the last time we'll rewind before we start going forward again. But before the Romans came to rule the, the Israel, the, that, or the world in general for that matter, the Greeks did. And the Greek conquest began with somebody named Philip of Macedonia. He's actually the founder of the city of Philippi, uh, which is what the book of Philippians was written to. And so he started the Greek conquest, and it was finished by his son, Alexander the Great. Now, as Alexander conquered the world, he worked to subdue the territories he conquered by instituting a process you may have heard of before. It was called Hellenization. Now, whenever a nation would conquer another nation, the hardest part was keeping control because nations... Nations that didn't share your nationality weren't keen on being ruled, so you had to figure out some way to do it. How the Greeks did it is they would essentially establish Greek culture, language, religion, and all of those things into their conquered regions. And most importantly, they made the language of trade Greek. So if you wanted to trade, you had to speak Greek. It was incredibly successful. Almost all of the world that Greek conquered ended up speaking Greek. That's actually why the New Testament is written in Greek, because it was the common language of the era, even after the Greek Empire fell and the Roman Empire arose. But the interesting thing is that the process of Hellenization was never implemented in Jerusalem. There's actually a really, really fascinating story told by the Jewish historian Josephus, which reads this. And I've got, it's written up here, it's just part of it. Uh, it comes from Antiquities, book 11, chapter 8, verse 5. Uh, and it says this, and this is my, what I'm going to read is a little bit longer than this. It says this, He, Alexander the Great, gave his hand to the high priest, and with the Jews running beside him, entered the city, the city is Jerusalem. And then he went up to the temple, where he sacrificed to God under the direction of the high priest. And he showed due honor to the priests and to the high priest himself. And when the book of Daniel was shown to him, which he had de- in, in which he had declared that one of the Greeks would destroy the empire of the Persians, he believed himself to be the one indicated. And in his joy, dismissed the multitude for the pi- time being. But on the following day, he summoned them again and told them to ask for any gifts in which they may desire. So essentially, if you didn't catch what happened there, Alexander the Great was conquering the world. He was conquering the Persian world at this point. And he comes to Jerusalem, and when he gets there, he goes to the temple to offer sacrifices. Now, in Greek culture, you, your gods weren't exclusive, so for him to offer a sacrifice to Yahweh God is not a big deal. It's just another one to add on to the many, many others that he had. And so he goes up there, and he talks with the high priest, and the high priest comes out, and he says, hey, I've got this prophecy from this guy named Daniel. He's been long dead, but we think this is you. So if you remember the end of Daniel, you've got a bunch of really strange things, right? First, you've got Nebuchadnezzar's vision where he's got the three, four-part statue. You've also got the ram and the goat, right, that run across and they smash heads. 
Uh, you've got the beasts that come out of the sea. And so the, essentially the high priest said, we predicted that a Greek was going to conquer the Persians, and that's you. And so Alexander the Great reads that, and he goes, yeah, that is me. Feels pretty good about that, right? And so he moves on. He skips, he skips the Hellenization process in Israel. Now granted, if you were to go online and look up that, there are, there are historical scholars who doubt the accuracy of this. It is written down, and we do have it from Josephus, but they would say that he made it up. Honestly, it doesn't matter. Whether the actual story is true or not doesn't really matter because the results are the same. Alexander, whether, whether as a result of this meeting or for some other reason, never institutes the process of Hellenization, and so Israel stays religiously and politically autonomous relative to the rest of the world. So if you've ever wondered before, as you read through the New Testament, why the Pharisees and Sadducees seem to have so much political power, that's why. Because their religious structure actually is integrated with the political structure in Israel, and it wasn't the case everywhere else. We can jump to the next slide. That would be great. So, Israel avoids cultural changes that affect the rest of the world, which is great news for the Jews and actually great news for our whole Bible story in general. But coming at it from any other perspective, that's not such good news. You see, the Jewish people were notorious for revolting. It was kind of their deal, right? In, in histories from across the world, they're revolting constantly, right? Many times under Greek rule, the Jews tried to overthrow their Greek rulers. And unfortunately, if you read, it's a really complicated history, but un, unfortunately, sometimes that caused unbelievably atrocious things, where, they were, where there was mass genocide from Jewish people, things like that. But that's a different lesson for a different day. But they revolted often. And to make matters worse, from a Roman perspective at least, they were actually successful under the leadership of somebody named Judas Maccabee. So in the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, there was a guy named Judas Maccabee who got together a bunch of Jewish fighters, and they actually overthrew the Greeks and reigned autonomously in Israel for a number of years before the Romans came. And so the Jews had had not only had autonomy because they weren't Hellenized, but they also got to rule themselves that way as well. But then after the Greeks came Rome. And Rome once again conquers Israel and begins by establishing Jewish leadership. So when Rome was trying to keep control, the first thing they did is they put Jewish leaders in charge. Herod was actually one of those. He was part Jewish. They wanted to implement Jewish leaders so that maybe the Jewish people wouldn't revolt. But again, that's another complicated history for another day. The the Jewish leaders or the partially Jewish leaders failed. And so Rome decided they needed to establish some more authority, and so then they instituted purely Roman governors. And that's where Pilate comes in, which is the next slide. So Pilate. Pilate was given the governorship over Judea, and, he, and he, was, he ruled in Judea from 26 to 36 AD, which actually covers the ministry life of both John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, like we had said earlier, Pilate most likely gets the job because he knew people. Most historians agree that there was a man named Sejanus, who was a close confidant of the emperor Tiberius, and he's the one that recommended Pilate for the job. We also know that Pilate's wife was Tiberius' granddaughter. Now, 
Tiberius had many, many children, so he had many, many grandchildren as well. So that's not that big of a deal, but it, it is good to be related to the emperor in some way or another. So for Pilate, this, this appointment was, was most likely seen as a stepping stone, the place for him to get started, for him to rule towards a more prominent and prestigious government sh- governorship somewhere else. Unfortunately for Pilate, the, the, his rule in Jerusalem doesn't go all that well. It gets off to a terrible start, actually. Pilate comes into Jerusalem right after he's appointed, right after the son of the son of Herod, or the grandson, I'm sorry, the grandson of Herod was deposed. And he's given a lot of authority because of that. He actually had more authority than most governors. He had the ordinary duties of being in charge of the economy, the financial situation, taxes, tribute, economy, that kind of stuff. But he's also given supreme power judiciously. He gets to make all of the decisions. But like we said, Pilate doesn't get off to a very good start. When he's being instated as governor, he marches into the city at night and sets up banners and statues of the emperor all over the city of Jerusalem. Now, like we said, depending on your perspective of the historians, your Jewish historians say he did that as a direct provi- uh, pro- to provoke the Jewish people. Uh, they did it on purpose, just to tick him off. If you, Roman historians actually just think he, he had no idea what he was doing. He wanted to honor the emperor and didn't realize that by setting up these statues, he was going to make everybody mad. It's one or the other. But the results are the same either way. When the Jewish people look around the city and they see the banners and they see these, these statues of the emperor, they freak out. They demand that they be taken down because, remember, they have this special kind of political autonomy that they haven't had to have this before. And so it was against the religion to have these statues up. And so, they, and so things start to get out of hand. Pilate refuses to take them down, and the Jewish people can get more and more agitated. Things get a little violent. There are some skirmishes. And the Jewish people actually appeal back to the emperor himself, telling, them, telling him what happened. The problem for Pilate is that the emperor listens to the Jewish people, and he writes them back a note telling, or ordering that Pilate take down these banners and these statues. Now, again, if you read Jewish historians, the rage of Tiberius was unmatched. He was furious. If you read Roman ones, he was, he was ticked off, but it wasn't that big of a deal, right? Depends on which side you read. Either way, though, it is very clear that the letter written back from Tiberius to Pilate had a disciplinary tone to it. Essentially, don't do this again. You were sent here so that these revolt kind of things don't happen anymore. Make sure they don't happen anymore. So over the course of Pilate's rule in Judea, he and the Jewish people bumped heads on a number of occasions. You can actually read about a few of them in the Bible. There's these little snippets. In the history, it's the same way. And that sets the stage for the most common biblical story of Pilate, which is the one of the crucifixion. As you read through that story, you can clearly see that a tension exists between the Jewish people and Pilate. But if you look closely, you can also see that a tension exists between Pilate and Tiberius. There's this three-way tension going on. Pilate is in an incredibly awkward position. He had to show his power to the Jewish people. They're known for revolting. If he's not strong, they're just going to revolt. But he also cannot afford politically another uprising to get back to Tiberius or he's going to lose his job. It's a really tough place to be. Now it's interesting. Pilate is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. In each of the Gospels, we have actually quite extensively a look into who Pilate is and, 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 and 
through his interactions with Jesus. And so we get to know him a little bit. Just to put that in perspective, the story of Jesus' birth itself is only mentioned in two of the four Gospels. And unless you count John, then it's three, but that's a little bit different. So what I want to do now is I just want to walk through what it, it we can throw up. So yeah, there we go. I want to walk through what we can notice when we read through this. The, uh, we can notice a few things as we read through the Gospels that we look at Pilate. First, first thing that we see when we read through the, the Gospels that we look at Pilate, we see that Pilate isn't overly concerned with Jesus leading a political uprising against him. And that's important and we'll see why in a little bit. Now, Pilate is worried about a political uprising in Judea, but he doesn't think Jesus is going to be the one to lead that. On a number of occasions throughout all of the Gospels, he, he thinks Jesus is innocent. He actually declares it. I don't think this guy's done anything wrong. That's one of the clearest signs that Pilate's not overly concerned about Jesus rising up. The other thing uh, that's really a, a really telltale sign is that, he, Jesus does, or that Pilate doesn't hunt down any of the disciples. Now, in the story of Peter, when he denies Jesus, Peter thinks he's going to, right? So Peter is sitting outside there, and he, he's afraid that somebody figure out who he is because he thinks that Pilate will come and hunt him down and kill him along with the rest of the disciples. That actually was kind of Pilate's deal. Usually he did that. Usually if there was someone that, upro- that rose up, he would kill them and everybody else. But he doesn't seem interested in doing that at all in this case. And third, which is another pretty obvious thing, he actually works to have Jesus released. If he was concerned about a political uprising, he would have had no interest in letting Jesus go. So as we look at Pilate through the gospel, the first thing that we notice is that he's not overly concerned with Jesus leading, leading a political uprising. The second thing that we notice is that he really doesn't want to condemn Jesus. I mean, in his emotion, his gut, in his, in his rule, he doesn't want to condemn Jesus. And it's actually pretty extreme because Pilate's wife even tries to convince him to get away from the situation altogether. If you read about Pilate in Matthew 27, 19, it says this, While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message and says, Don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Pilate's wife saying, Get away from Jesus. Distance yourself because I'm, being, I'm having dreams about him. Now, quick interesting side note. Many traditions claim that Pilate's wife, her, her name was Claudia, uh, was actually converted to Christianity right after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, a, quite a bit of Catholic tradition actually would even suggest that the Claudia that Paul is referring to in 2 Timothy 4.21 is Pilate's wife. So in 2 Timothy 4.21, it says Claudia sends her greetings. Um, a lot of people believe that's Pilate's wife, that she was so enamored with Jesus that she converted after his resurrection doesn't really have much to do with what we're talking about now, but it's interesting nonetheless. And so finally, we see that Pilate doesn't want, to con- what, doesn't want to condemn Jesus, and he actually tries to absolve himself spiritually from Jesus' crucifixion. That's the washing of the hands thing. Hey, I'm clean on this one. I don't want any part of this. So we see that Pilate isn't overly concerned with a political uprising. We see that he, he personally doesn't really want to condemn Jesus But we also see that he's curious about Jesus. There's no way that Pilate hadn't heard about Jesus before he was brought to him. Jesus was too big of a local celebrity at that point. Now, Pilate may have not met Jesus before, but he had surely heard about the signs and the wonders, the triumphal entry, all of these things that are happening. The world is is a small enough place, even at this time, that he would have heard about this man, Jesus. We actually know from one of the gospel stories that Pilate sends Jesus off to Herod, 
And, the, and Luke tells us that Herod is actually really excited to meet Jesus. He has never met Jesus before, but he has heard about all these signs and wonders, and he actually wants to see one. Most likely, Pilate is in the same camp, that he had heard about Jesus, maybe not met him before, and, and is interested. But if we were to look at the passage that we're going to look at today, which is John 19, starting at verse 6, we get a fascinating insight into Pilate. So if you've got a Bible, open with me to John 19. I'm going to start reading at verse 6, and I'll read it to you. It says this, But Pilate answered, you take, you, you, take, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, that, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse me, Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you, have no power. you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is, is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friends of, friend of Caesar's. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar." When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat, him, sat down on the judge's seat, known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. It's a powerful story regardless, but when we focus on Pilate, we see a few things here. We see first that Pilate thinks that Jesus is innocent. But the, what I think is the most fascinating is actually in verse 7 and 8. Pilate declares that Jesus is innocent, and then the Jews actually reveal the real reason they want to kill him. In verse 7, they say, because he claims to be the Son of God. Up until this point, the Jews had been saying, well, he opposes Caesar. He claims to be king. They reveal the real reason here in verse 7. And the, what I think is so fascinating is what happens in verse 8. So they've just said he claims to be the Son of God. When Pilate hears this, he's even more afraid, which is fascinating, right? That he was already nervous, but this statement makes him a little bit more nervous. And the question that he responds with, I think, gives us a lot of insight. Pilate asks Jesus, where are you from? And the reason I think that's so fascinating is because if we're talking about it spatially, Pilate knows where Jesus is from. He's from Galilee. He's not asking him, where on earth do you live? He knows exactly where Jesus lives. He lives in Galilee. What he's asking is, who are you really? Why are these people so afraid of you? What is going on? I really believe that Pilate is starting to wonder if Jesus is who he says he is. That's why he's so afraid, Right? When, he realized, when, he, when it's revealed to him, we want him killed because he claims to be the son of God, Pilate goes, uh-oh. Right? He's already got his wife who's saying to him, get away from this guy. Right? You don't want any part of this. And now they've just said this. And that's why Pilate comes back by saying, where are you from? But notice how Jesus responds. It's interesting. He's actually very politically, politically subversive here. Right, this is a statement that in almost every other context would really tick Pilate off. You would have no power over me if it was not given from above. 
right? Pilate, in that case, should go, you know what? That's it. We're done. But he doesn't. It actually has the opposite effect. At that point, Pilate works even harder to get him released. Which brings us to the point of this whole thing. We see that Pilate really uh, thought Jesus was innocent and he wasn't worried about him. Personally, really wanted him to go and he's even starting to wonder, maybe he is who he says he is. But it all hinges on this last point, that Pilate is politically afraid and worldly afflicted. Pilate tries to set Jesus free until we get to John 19, verse 12. You see, the Jewish people know what's going on as well, and they play right into his political stuckness. Right? What do they yell? They say, anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. And there it is for Pilate. That's his crossroads. He can either go with what he knows to be right and risk an uprising. That will get back to Caesar, and he'll lose his job. Or he can give in to the people and keep his job. That's where Pilate is stuck. If it gets back that this whole uprising was about somebody who claimed to be king, and the Jews tell the story that someone opposed Caesar, and Pilate doesn't do anything, he's done for. And so he gives in. Now, there are many scholars who actually believe that the Jewish statement in verse 15 was, was kind of the Pilate's deal he cut. It says in verse 15, uh, that the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. There are a lot of people who believe that that's what Pilate made the chief priest say. Hey, I'll give you what you want, but you better swear allegiance to Caesar so this kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. For the chief priest to declare that we have no king but Caesar is a huge deal. They've had, they've had political and religious autonomy for a long time. So a lot of people think Pilate said, you do this and I'll do that, and then we'll cut this deal and we'll be done with this whole thing. He gives in to his worldly side. Because the chief priest would lose power later on because of that statement. He would lose one of his power cards. And so Pilate makes him play that. So as we take all of these things together, as we really get a good picture of who Pilate is, what we see when we look at Pilate's life is that he was an ill-equipped middle manager of one of the lowest points, posts in the Roman governorship. Who honestly, if he hadn't been part of Jesus' story, is probably forgotten by history. He should, have been a, he should have been a historical nobody. And actually, honestly, that continues to be true after the resurrection. So just to put a cap on Pilate's story, we know that Pilate continues to rule in Jerusalem until 36 A.D. We know Jesus was crucified somewhere between 30 and 33 A.D., so somewhere between three or six more years after Jesus. But in 36 A.D., there was a small uprising by a group of Samaritans. And from all historical accounts, it was a pretty small deal. But Pilate kind of goes overboard, gathers an army, and crushes the entire thing rather violently. Uh, most people agree being much harsher than he ought to have been. And honestly, that was the last straw for Tiberius. As soon as he hears about what Pilate did in that case, he, Pilate gets recalled back to Rome, summoned back to Rome. But what's so interesting is that when Pilate was on his way back to Rome, Tiberius died. And then Pilate falls off of the historical earth. He disappears. He's gone. We have no idea what happened to him. Uh, with, any, with any kind of certainty at all. Now, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of myths and legends surrounding what Pilate did, but no real historical record. Some people claimed that he converted to Christianity and was persecuted or even martyred by the next Roman governor, Caligula. It's possible. Other people claim that he committed suicide right when he got back to Rome. I suppose that's also possible. There are three other accounts that say that he was thrown into one of two different rivers or inside of a mountain, one of those three. I guess they're all similar. 
Um, but then that account also says that wherever he was eventually thrown, he haunted that area with a bunch of evil spirits as well. So that's your legend scope of what happens to Pilate after he dies. He kind of, like I said, disappears off of legitimate history. Which brings us to the last part, the big question, so what? Why does it matter for us to understand Pilate at all? Why does any of this matter? And we started this thing based on the, the line of the Apostles' Creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate. That statement is put in there. That statement is put into the Apostles' Creed because it gives us insight into who Jesus was and how absolutely amazing his example was us for us to follow. You see, the, this phrase shows us the extent of the humility of our Savior. The God of the universe, Jesus Christ, makes himself subject to a human governor. And honestly, not one with even that much ability or power. It'd be one thing if he made himself subject to Tiberius. People could argue, well, of course he did. Everybody in the world did at that point. But he gives himself into Pilate, who's not a powerful or effective leader. At best, he's an ignorantly stubborn leader who poorly navigates through the religious and political atmosphere of the region he was sent to govern. And at worst, to quote the Jewish historian Philo, was an inflexible, merciless, and obstinate ruler who the Jewish people absolutely hated. And Jesus suffers under this person. And if you really let that sink in, that's a big deal. Pilate was a nobody. And yet, while Jesus is being beaten and taunted and, and mocked, he still makes himself submissive to Pilate. The hard part about all this is that we're called to model Jesus. And even in this. Now, it's, re it would, it's really, really hard for us to follow an example, his example in a case like this, isn't it? Jesus chooses in this situation to make himself subject to someone who clearly doesn't deserve it. He sets aside the power and the authority that is rightly his to follow the will of God and is condemned by an insignificant civil authority which is unbelievably humbling, isn't it? What we see here in this story is what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2 when he says that he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage, but he humbled himself. What we see here in Jesus' example is that to follow the will of God is more important than getting what you deserve, which is truly the point of this whole we're called to follow Jesus' example, and that's what he's showing us. He faithfully followed the Father's will in the face of suffering under the authority of Pilate. But if we're honest, we find ourselves in situations like that probably more often than we think. Situations in which we know what we need to do, but it will be difficult or painful, and so we avoid them. Situations in which we realize the person in authority over us doesn't deserve it. But God has clearly called us to faithfully submit. Situations in which we're called to lay down what we deserve for the kingdom purpose that we've been called to achieve. Now don't get me wrong, it's incredibly difficult for us to follow Jesus in this example. But we do see here that it's not for nothing. 
Paul tells us in Philippians that because Jesus humbled himself, he was exalted, which is the same thing that we hear and see in this story as well. Now, hopefully you don't miss the irony of this story. Pilate gave in to political pressure and did something that was against his better judgment in order to maintain a legacy that he didn't deserve. While Jesus didn't give in to any of the horrible things he was subjected to, even though he actually actually deserved so much more. Pilate's legacy was almost immediately forgotten. While Jesus is spread like wildfire all over the known world and persists until today, and as we know from Scripture, will never be overcome. So the point of this phrase, the point of this passage, the point of this section of the Bible, the point of us focusing on Pilate today is to follow Jesus' example and humbly follow where God leads no matter where that is. We're being called to humble ourselves and sacrifice what we think we deserve, avoiding Pilate's error in order order to be part of a bigger kingdom story that God has in mind for us. Because we can see from this story the impact of both. We could be like Pilate and make very little positive, lasting influence on the world we find ourselves in. We can avoid pain and we can lose everything. Or we can take it to heart and follow the example of Jesus. Humble ourselves, and even if it's God's will, even to those who don't deserve it. But then we're promised that in that, we can make a lasting, meaningful impact on the world that we've been called to. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your scripture. Thank you again for being willing to humble yourself. It blows my mind the more I think about it, that, that how far of a fall that is, and how hard it is for me to even give up a little. We thank you for that. We thank you for your example. And we, call for, we ask for your, your strength and your ability to do that ourselves, to follow your example, and to live the way that you've shown us. Pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.